Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. I'm Simon Mundy and this week my guest is Siobhan Marie O'Connor, one of Britain's very best swimmers who last week announced that she was retiring from the sport to focus on her health. She has ulcerative colitis, an inflammatory bowel disease which affects the lining of the intestine and can cause severe abdominal pain, a weakened immune system, weight loss and extreme fatigue. She was diagnosed with the condition at the age of 16, shortly after competing at the 2012 London Olympics, and has been hospitalized with it on several occasions. That Siobhan Marie achieved as much as she did in the pool despite her condition is remarkable. The highlights of her career came at the Rio Olympics when she swam the third fastest time in history to win silver in the individual medley. She's also learned so many lessons over the last 10 years, not least the importance of separating her identity and self-worth from how she was performing in the pool. So many of us are prone to mixing up who we are with what we do, so it's a theme I think lots of you will be able to relate to. Siobhan Marie also talks about realising the power of the mind, swimming world-class times and qualifying for the Olympics as a teenager, despite being really poorly, and learning how to get out of her own way, not least with some wise and timely words from her coach. She talks about the importance of acceptance, how preparation equals confidence, why recording your progress can be so valuable, and much more besides. It was a pleasure talking to Siobhan Marie, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Siobhan Marie, how are you? Hi Simon, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. Do you know what? I am really happy to talk to you. I've been thinking about how fortunate I am to get to speak to people like you. 
who've had these really interesting experiences and who are up for opening up and, and talking about important stuff and reflecting back on amazing journeys. So I just want to say it's a privilege and I'm already grateful and excited to chat. Uh, thank you. It's great to chat to you too. I'm really excited. So you've been through a pretty mad old time, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been a hard year for a lot of people. But personally, yeah, I've had a definitely tricky six months or so. But I'm kind of feeling in a lot better place than I was. And like I've had to make some hard decisions, but ultimately, you know, in my best interest. So yeah, for your well-being. Yeah. Um, when you first made the announcement, the first hint, if you like, when you said that you weren't going to be competing in the British Championships and you, you put out that statement, you put something on Instagram, got lots of love for it. How did you feel then? It was quite overwhelming, to be honest. I mean, you know, at that point, I wasn't ready to announce my retirement. And I think it kind of almost snuck up on me. You know, I was going about my week and then it had been announced that I wasn't at trials. My name wasn't confirmed on the entry list. And I think, you know, I didn't really think anything of it. I, I didn't think people would notice until the meet was on and like, you know, the swimming was on and people would think, OK, she's not there. But then it was in a way quite nice that people picked up on it and were concerned but I just wasn't ready for that at all I'd been struggling for so long to come to terms with the fact that you know I was going to be retiring and then I don't know I, I was very nervous about having to put that statement out you know I needed to sort of clarify where, why I wasn't going to be at trials but you know at that point there was like members of my family that I hadn't even really spoken to and I hadn't told so I, I knew it was going to come as a bit of a shock and you know we've been in lockdown for so many months so like I hadn't seen anyone people weren't really aware of what was going on but it was completely overwhelming, like the lovely messages that I had. I mean, I was like crying all day. Like, you know, every time I got a message, I'd start crying again. <laughs> and it was like, just really lovely. I think it's been quite hard because I felt like my body has let me down, like in the past few months. And unfortunately, in the past like couple of years, I've really struggled with health when I was going through like the kind of really tough months where I was out the pool and really unwell, just not able to do the sport that I loved. I felt really like a bit of a failure like I know that sounds a bit silly but that's how I felt and so then when I had all these like lovely lovely messages being so kind and like really caring about how I was feeling and it made me realize like it's not all about medals and it's not all about sport success it was really really comforting and really lovely and I think that's why I got so emotional and just like completely overwhelmed really. I think that's a very important point yeah that sometimes gets lost that everyone does get a bit obsessed about the golds and the winning and all that kind of stuff but it is about more than that and you've learned that there yeah exactly that's one of the amazing things about sport is the highs are so fantastic and that's why you know people like myself like I do it I love it I just <laughs> there's nothing more that I would want than to you know stand on the top of the podium again so obviously it's completely heartbreaking when you know that you aren't going to have the opportunity to do it you can't but you know I've definitely been guilty of just seeing myself as the time I swim so you know if I'm off my best time at a competition I completely base my whole being on that time which is ridiculous you know when I was in Rio and I swam 206 I felt invincible but when I've been to competitions and I've swam 219 I feel like absolutely distraught and like obviously I'm distraught at the performance but it completely changes how I feel about myself you know I feel like I'm based on that time I'm based on a number and yeah that's why it was really really nice to have that day where people were just so kind and so thoughtful and just like you know really really made me feel that comforted about the fact that like okay I can't do the sport that I love now but like you know that's not what's important like it's 
my health and my well-being and like me I think that was really nice it's not just my time (laughs) you know that I'm really interested in that illusion around mixing up who we are with what we do and it's really really heightened in sports but it's almost a universal phenomenon it seems like everyone does it to some degree but in sport clearly massively heightened yeah it is definitely I think you know as a sports person your sport and success is your identity you're right it's heightened in sport but it's the same for anyone in what they do like they feel like like that's their sole identity in a way and sort of sometimes without it you feel lost and you know in sport it's so easy to see why that happens because you know I started swimming every day since the age of 10 and like I've literally grown up in a swimming pool you know I was always referred to as Siobhan the swimmer <laughs> um, you know to all my friends like I'd fall asleep in class and people would know why or I was away at competitions and people would just say oh she's swimming and I used to be like so proud of that I used to just think I'm slightly different and I think that made me really proud so then therefore I just kind of always had this correlation of the more results I achieved the more people liked me from a really early age competing at counties or regionals when I'm 12 you know not as many people are going to be involved in that journey as they are potentially when you're swimming at an Olympics but I used to just kind of associate it with like people liked me more and and so then therefore it just became my whole identity and you know I was very worried about how I would feel like when it stopped like when I wasn't a swimmer anymore you know I was like people even like me the same you know I, I don't know who I am without swimming it's kind of just always been the thing that I love to do and I've always been Siobhan the swimmer and and I, I realized that my family and friends they'd have never really cared how I've swam other than they just want me to do well for me if I swim poorly it doesn't change how they feel about me and it doesn't change my identity to them and I think that that's a really important point it doesn't change your identity to those around you that care once you sort of feel like you're past that point of it becoming your identity you feel kind of almost liberated in a way I think that's a fantastic point and I think I've got to admit I had a quick scroll on your Instagram when you did post that you weren't going to be competing at the British Champs. Do you know which one was my favourite message? Probably from my nan. I it was. It's the one from your nan, indeed. And she just says, I'm proud of the person you are. Beautiful inside and out. Your determination will see you through in wherever life takes you. So clearly, I mean, she doesn't give a monkeys where you finish on the podium, does she? No. I mean, obviously, like, that <laughs> she wants me to do well, just like any member of my family or my friends. You know, they just want me to do well for me. Like, they know how hard... I've had to work and all the struggles that it takes to kind of get to stand on a podium at any level, you know, I think that's why she wanted me to do well, but she was heartbroken seeing the place that I got into. And at that point, you know, <laughs> she, that's she sort of told me she was glad that I wasn't swimming anymore because she just said she didn't like how sad it made me. Mm. And I think that that was a real revelation for me because I was like, Oh, well, that shouldn't be, how I'm feeling and unfortunately it became that way because there's a complete mismatch between what my brain wanted and what my body was allowing me to do and and that just becomes really hard and it it got me really down she was just so concerned about my well-being and just wants me to be happy and whether that's standing on the podium that's what makes me happy or whether it's walking away from the sport and finding something else that makes me happy yeah that's what she cares about yeah exactly 
Nans are the best. Mine's going to be 100 next year, believe that. Before we move on, something you said about identity, and identity is something that I find fascinating and have touched on a lot, and you sort of touched on it in terms of post-identity and realising that you are not your time that you get. Another thing that um, I've spoken about recently along these lines is where someone does identify with their time and perhaps it almost goes the other way and believes the hype about themselves. And that's why I think for me, the sports people I most admire are the ones who, even if they have achieved something amazing, retain that humility rather than believing the hype, you know, because I've spoken to some people, not for this podcast, but I've spoken to some people who've achieved really amazing things. And you get the sense that they really believe the hype about themselves. And it's nowhere near, put it this way, it's nowhere near as endearing as someone who is humble in the face of whatever they've managed to achieve. Yeah, I think the thing with swimming and sport is I always think like when I was 10 or 11 and I was starting out in the sport, I only did it because I absolutely loved it. And I just, it was a hobby and I just fell in love with the sport. (laughs) When I was younger at primary school, I didn't always have like the most confidence. And so then when I started swimming, you know, I had this like extra thing to do after school. I had a whole bunch of new friends and like, I just got so much enjoyment from it. The whole way through my career, all I did was like every time, you know, I achieved something, I just wanted to carry on and keep doing it. You know, the more I swam, the more I wanted to do. And I think the fact that I was like lucky enough to kind of go to the Olympics and the things that I was able to achieve, it really was like such a blessing because it was just genuinely a hobby. It was not about that to begin with. And I always like reminded myself of that. And it's just a sport that I love to do. And there's so many more important things I'm the world's biggest sports fan. I love it. And I literally love how much it can give someone. And at any level, like you're not just sort of at, you know, top elite level, just like participation level, you know, as a fan watching sport, like it unites people in this way that just like... That and music, I think, yeah. Exactly. Unites people in a way that like not many other things, like you say, other than music does. Like, you know, when you go to the Olympics and people from all around the world come together in this huge celebration and... You know, I remember what it was like when England were in the World Cup semi-final. Like the country was just on like, you know, like I remember waking up just like with a spring in my step because England was the semi-final of the world. And it's just sport just has that incredible power. And I've always just thought that I felt really lucky to be able to do what I've done. And anything sort of on from just swimming at participation level was a huge bonus. Like it was just like every sort of step along the way was like a huge bonus. And I was, you know, I look back and I'm really proud, but it was never about you know, I was in it for anything else other than I loved it. Yeah, totally. Okay, let's go back then. So you talked about swimming when you were young and just how much you loved it. But I read a letter you wrote to yourself because obviously you have had your health challenges, which we'll touch on. And you wrote a letter to yourself and something I noticed in it was nursery and how you struggled. So what was the difficulty you had there? I just wasn't very confident kids. I was always like such a home bird. I'm the eldest child. I remember like, you know, the first kind of grandkid and my parents and my grandparents literally spoiled me. And I was just like, had such a lovely time at home. And I liked going to school because I loved, you know, learning. But I remember I just never had confidence. I don't really know why, because my parents and family like showered me with it. But it was just almost a fact of like being on my own. Like, you know, I don't really understand, but being on my own and sort of having to stand on my own two feet, even just at primary school, I didn't feel 
completely confident and yeah I just had a bit of a tricky time like I didn't make friends very easily um at that point and as I've got older like I've learned and like grown and it was just sort of at primary school but that's such a fundamental age you know you learn so much at that age and it was around that time that I started swimming and I think to be honest I think at that point if there was anything that I'd found that I enjoyed I would have just thrown myself into it and that's what I did and it just gave me that incredible joy like I would be so excited to go home and then like finish school so that I could go swimming and I'd be so excited for the weekend for like little galas that I'd take part in and you know I had yeah like I said like a whole heap of friends that you know I had outside of school which was lovely and it was just such a huge confidence boost swimming gave me confidence you know I think back in swimming was definitely my first love and I was yeah just completely madly in love with the sport at that level so I loved swimming myself. Well, I still do, but really loved it when I was growing up. And I was just thinking before we chatted about what it is about swimming. And I was thinking it's that element of freedom. It's like normal rules don't apply. You know, you can float, you know, you don't plummet to the bottom. Gravity is somewhat ameliorated. If you could sum it up, what was it that made you fall in love with swimming? Do you know? I think it was the confidence. It was like I found something that I was good at and that I'm massively competitive. I think anyone that knows me will say, you know, I've always been really competitive and I've come from a really sporty family. Like we love sport and sport was always on the telly. My dad was always playing sport. My brother as well. Like my parents took me and my brother to like every different sports club going. And just because they believe so much in like, you know, the power of sport and like all the benefits that come from it and all the good that comes from it. So I think when I found swimming, this is the one that stuck I was just I actually was like you know I don't have great hand-eye coordination I didn't have like a, a real sort of standout talent at anything else and swimming I did like and I was massively competitive so I just got so much from it when you're swimming you're completely in your own head and to begin with that was like fantastic for me like I just loved being in the lane and just having my own space like my own mind like to occupy me and it was just a a release like and it it always has been I mean to be honest like as I've got older and training became more intense you know sometimes it didn't feel like this sort of like comfortable place it felt pretty hard and tough but um to begin with you know I was completely in control I think that was probably it like (laughs) I'd say I'm a bit of a control freak and (laughs) in swimming you're just completely in control of your own performance or your own your own ability so I really liked that And then talk about being a prodigy. So you were 15 years old and you were picked to go to the World Championships in Shanghai. I mean, that is unbelievably young to be going to the World Championships. Was it an enjoyable experience? Was it an anxiety-inducing experience? How was it? (laughs) It was a bit of a whirlwind, actually. Like, I think I was so nervous to go. It was so unexpected as well. That year, I wasn't trying to make the team and... I went to a competition. It was the second trials for the Worlds. You know, I'd been training really well. I just joined the National Centre in Bath with my coach, Dave McNulty, that year. And, you know, I'd kind of gone from being a junior swimmer, swimming in like a junior programme, to a junior swimmer still, but swimming in a senior programme. Training hours increased. Um, You know, I I was given access to all these incredible facilities and support that I didn't have before so my performance was coming on and you know I was sort of getting better at each competition that I went to and I remember I was swimming really well at this competition and my my coach Dave it was like one of the like best things he ever said to me and it stuck with me through years of like swimming he said to me 
after the heat swim, he said that I was like paying way too much respect to like the girls I was swimming against. You know, he said he was like, you're capable of winning this event tonight, but you are too scared to win because you believe that because you're younger and less experienced that you shouldn't win, but like you're more than capable. Yeah, respect to them, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which you always have to do in sport. You always have to respect your rivals, but not almost like fear them in a way. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Said that so was that was that a real eureka moment then for you? Oh, massively. Because yeah, cause then I, I got in that night and I won the event and then, yeah, just swam my own race. I like just sort of thought, yeah, he's right. Like I can win this, you know. I, I don't know. I don't know whether I was subconsciously sort of not trying as hard and sort of, I don't know, but... I, I can completely relate. I was not a winner when I was... So I obviously didn't play sports to your level, but played a few tennis tournaments and and I didn't believe that I would beat some players who were better than me. And even if I was in a winning position, I would conspire to lose. And I think in hindsight, a big part of that, my opponents may disagree, but a big part of that was down to what I believed about what I was capable of. And then later, I think I was able to shift that a bit, but it sounds like you were able in that moment to dispel that and then it became all about exploring your own potential rather than relative to everyone else that's literally exactly it it's so true I think no one had ever said it to me before um, especially when you're younger and just sort of coming up through the sport you see people's results on paper or you see their stats or their times that they've previously swam and you think because they've been better than me on paper like they should therefore beat me in this race and you don't have the belief that you can almost cause an upset and win. And I think when he said that to me, it really just like took me back. And, you know, I wanted to prove him wrong. And I do feel like it was a complete turning point because after that, I've said like, you know, you have to respect the people that you swim against, respect your opponents before and after the race. But during the race, don't pay them any respect, you know, like it's <laughs> literally just, it's a competition, it's a race. And yeah. you know, be the best sportsman and the best sports person after the race and before, but you you don't do it whilst you're in the moment. And, you know, at that point, you're all flesh and blood and there's no reason that you couldn't, like, perform the way that yeah, you yeah. should perform. Yeah, so. total level playing field. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's a... Do you know what? If someone had said that to me, well, who knows? I mean, I certainly wouldn't have got particularly far, but it would have been different, certainly. I think that's a great... For anyone listening, particularly younger people, perhaps, because I'm sure this is a common phenomenon of oh, I couldn't beat that person, I couldn't get that job, I couldn't go out with that person, whatever it may be, it manifests in many forms, but not believing those self-limiting beliefs that are lurking in our in our subconscious or shining a light on them can be very powerful. Right, so you went to Shanghai, 15-year-old, which is nuts, and then you came back and you were doing your GCSEs as well. I mean, it was just intense time clearly with the attention on you when you came back that's when your health problems kicked off am I right in, in thinking that you actually thought you had a bug that you picked up in Shanghai yeah yeah I did I had a fantastic time in Shanghai but I came back and like things just weren't right I did genuinely believe it was like something I'd picked up and I read that you could pick up things when you've like traveled abroad but I didn't know what was wrong I knew that I was suffering from symptoms I just didn't feel right and for a long time I was told that there was nothing wrong. So it was a really, really strange time that year. I'd made the World Championships team the year before. So then, well, that was 2011. And coming back September, I was starting the Olympic season. You know, London 2012 had never been in my sights before. I always thought that I'd be too young. I was going to be 16 by the time the Olympics came around in the summer and just believed I would miss that boat because it was two before my time, really. Mm. But then obviously qualifying for the Worlds like gave me that 
confidence that I was like, oh, wow, actually, I might be able to make the team. I've proved I can do it. I just need to get everything right this year. And hopefully, like, I could challenge, make the 200 medley in the summer. So it just ignited this dream, really, that, you know, wasn't there until kind of that year. What were the symptoms and what sort of stuff were you going through? Because I know ulcerative colitis is pretty grim tummy troubles, but it also can affect your vision, your joints, like it's extremely painful, obviously like loads of trips to the lab. At that time, it wasn't diagnosed, right? So it must have been confusing, scary, all of those things. Yeah, it definitely was scary. But in a way, actually, to be honest, that year, I'd say that wasn't the scary point for me. Um, I was having all these things, like you said, so many frequent trips to the toilet. I couldn't put on weight at all. I remember my coach really wanted me to bulk up because I was tiny. There was no way I was going to be able to kind of compete against girls that were, you know, big, strong. And like, you have to be for my event and, and for swimming, you have to have a really strong body and be able to withstand the training and all the hours needed to be able to swim well. And yeah, I would have weird things that would, I didn't ever associate it to being tummy trouble or like to do with something that, you know, was going on in my inside. Like it was, I'd wake up in the morning and my mum and dad would be taking me to training and I couldn't see anything. Like, thank goodness, like I wasn't driving myself to training at that age Mm. um, because I couldn't really see, like it was so strange. Like my vision was just so blurry. And I remember, you know, I went to opticians and it was just, um, they couldn't explain it. Um, But I had really weird joint pain and I'd go for scans and there'd be nothing there. It was just so bizarre. But because I was like not sure that there was anything wrong, I thought that I was okay. I was sort of told that, you know, it was IBS and I was just told that there was nothing fundamentally wrong. So that then meant to me that there was no reason for me to like be like, okay, well, I can't do this or it was a complete mind over matter. Like I was really, really poorly, but like I almost like didn't allow myself to think that I was poorly because I was being told that I wasn't. And then therefore I was so single-minded and like so determined to make the team that like nothing was going to stop me. That's Um, really interesting. Sorry, just to jump in. So actually, potentially had you been diagnosed, you may not have gone for the Olympics or you may not have made the Olympics because you would have then known that there was definitively something wrong, but in your head, because they couldn't, find anything you could almost justify it to yourself and think oh no it's I'll carry on regardless yeah to be honest you're right if I had been told you know a few months previously to the Olympics that I had ulcerative colitis it would have completely derailed me and I would have just been completely devastated and it's crazy because I had it the whole time I I didn't feel any know it Yeah. yeah I didn't feel scared about it until when I actually knew what it was. But then thankfully after that, I'd been to London and I'd had this like incredible, incredible experience. At that point when I was diagnosed after, it was literally like a a couple of months after, I actually did then feel relief because I, I remember thinking, okay, there is something wrong and I'm glad I now know what it is. So it was an instantly like relief, but then it was like I was in denial for ages, absolute denial. Like I just went back to the way of thinking before I was diagnosed, which was like, I'm fine and there's nothing wrong with me and I'm just going to carry on like nothing's happened. And that was like probably like the worst thing I could have done. It took me forever to kind of like accept that I needed to understand and appreciate, you know, what I'd been told and like what I actually had. And I'd managed to get away with like 
completely burning the candle at both ends the year before but like I was really really putting so much stress on my body I couldn't carry on like that just ignoring the problem so I had to accept it yeah that was when it probably became a bit scary for me because I'd finally had this like taste of going to an Olympics and like London 2012 was honestly like the best experience of my life and I got like front row tickets to the swimming every night and seeing like my sporting heroes and and then it was like that diagnosis came as such a shock because I thought, well, is this going to completely derail me? Am I going to am I going to be able to carry on and and get to the Olympics again and and perform and, and not kind of just be like you know someone that makes the numbers up on the team? And I was like, four years later, I want to be on that podium, and I thought that my diagnosis was going to stop me. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Didn't know, and we'll come to that. And you mentioned the word acceptance, which I think is, for me, like one of the most important words in so many ways, and whether it be accepting your condition in your case, rather than sort of being in denial and, and I read as well you even speaking about sort of hating your body or for the fact that it perhaps wasn't doing what you wanted it to do and I just think acceptance is crucial in so many ways and we'll, we'll come back to that but I just want to go back to London 2012 because you talk about um, mind over matter that was incredibly the case with what you were dealing with so you obviously you're going through GCCs you've got ulcerative colitis which is in terms of crippling pain, very little energy. I read an interesting story about, I don't know if this was for the Olympics, but I thought it illustrates it well. Your parents took your brother to a rugby match one Sunday, left you in bed, returned at 6 p.m. and you were still asleep. You'd been 19 hours, you were sleeping at school. Yet, in spite of the fact that, you, I mean, you must have been operating in, in at less than 50% and couldn't put on weight, all these things, you still managed to, at the age of 16, 
qualify for the Olympics. I just think that that is staggering and does show, like you say, power of mind over matter. Just to zero in on two bits, though, the 200 individual medley, where you say, where you do all four strokes, that's your event. But at London 2012, you didn't actually qualify. You said you got very nervous and basically didn't produce the goods. And because of your nerves in the qualies, you said you wanted to cry for a week. But then a week later, you came back and absolutely smashed it. So just talk me through those two experiences of the individual medley, what went wrong, what you learned from it, and how you managed to come back a week later in the breaststroke and what happened. The year of 2012 was probably one of the most important years of my life in like so many ways um I learned like so many really fundamental lessons that year and one of them was yeah definitely that um disappointment of not making the team in the 200 medley I was absolutely devastated the year before I'd made the team for the 200 medley for the Worlds in Shanghai but it had come as a complete shock like I said about the fact that I went to the competition and I had no experience of going to a trials and trying to make a team I'd never dealt with those nerves before it was fantastic that that happened but I almost (laughs) went into it in a really on the back foot because I wasn't sure what that atmosphere was going to be like so the trials for the London 2012 Olympics were actually in the aquatic center and it was honestly like a pressure cooker every swimmer there at the trials you know there's hundreds of swimmers are all trying to make the team for the Olympics at home Olympics and you know you know that you've got like one shot and it's not sort of like once every four years you know a home Olympic Games is like once in a lifetime if you're Um, lucky exactly if you're lucky and I think it was just the most (laughs) tense atmosphere I've ever sort of walked in on before like you know I remember before my race I couldn't even talk I was so nervous I knew everything it meant I completely focused on the outcome rather than the process but at that age like I'd never dealt with it before so like it was inevitable really that I was going to feel like that and I'm quite glad that kind of in hindsight I wasn't too hard on myself I got to the race I was absolutely a nervous wreck (laughs) I swam terribly and unfortunately I came fifth and two girls qualified for that event and then they sealed that event off so that was it I genuinely believed at that point that my Olympic dream was over and I was devastated like absolutely devastated but that was sort of like the beginning of the week and I still had a few events left and you know I remember I got back to the apartment with my parents and I was crying my eyes out and I was like I want to go home I don't want to swim in like you know I don't want to swim the rest of the week like what's the point and they said to me along with my coach you can't go home like as much as you really really want to go home now and just like not go back to the pool and dwell on what's happened you need to pick yourself up and get back on the horse you need to put it behind you as quickly as possible and I feel like that's probably one of the best lessons I've ever learned you know as hard as it was to like go to the pool the next morning and swim a 200 breaststroke when I was feeling below par I was just like it taught me so much I believe that so much of my success has come from like the lessons that my family and you know my coach and my friends have been able to give me the strength to make you know if it was up to me at that point I would have gone home (laughs) and um, that was fantastic that they gave me that advice and then I got back on the horse and then within a you know a week or so I'd felt like I'd put it behind me and I I looked to the next thing my coach said that I had a puncher's chance in another event which was the 100 breaststroke he said you know there's only one slot has been filled and back then you had two trials so you could you know qualify again in in the summer just before the Olympics in July and I remember thinking okay he's a bit crazy you know I've never really been a breaststroke swimmer but he just obviously believed in me and believed like you know if I turned to breaststroke and 
gave it my all that there was a puncher's chance and so that's what I did absolutely non-stop breaststroke just put all my eggs into that basket and and then like come the next trials I knew that I was going to be feeling nervous I'd learned from my mistakes of sort of letting it get too much and I managed to qualify. You knocked a second off your time didn't you? Yeah I knocked a second off my time which in swimming terms is quite a big chunk of time. Lifetime, yeah. yeah it was just like a fantastic feeling and I always think back to that time because there was some really, really important lessons that I learned then that I carried with me for like many, many years to come. You'd always carry them with you, weren't you? And that, I think this is the beauty of sport. And so you're 25 and you've had 10 years as an elite athlete. It is such a metaphor for life because obviously you're now retired, but it's the same as normal life, but everything's heightened and quickened. So the highs are much higher than normal life. The highs, the lows, the lessons that, that someone might learn over a long period of time you learned some key ones there in the space of like a week, just in terms of then the nerves. So you said the nerves got the better of you with the individual medley. How did you learn to manage them then with the breaststroke or any other race in future? Because nerves is obviously something that's a bit of a universal affliction. It took me a long time to really understand what like nerves were and like what they meant and how to deal with them. You know, I feel like that's something that I really got right in Rio, which was testament to the amazing team that I had around me. So like you say, everything's heightened in sport, but people get nervous for everything. It's like your fight or flight. It's like your body's way of protecting you from uncomfortable situations. Nerves want to keep you in your comfort zone. And basically I had to try and work out exactly how I was going to be feeling come the Rio Olympic Games. I was fully aware that going into it, I definitely did have sort of people put a medal around my neck. And that was exactly what I wanted. You know, I'd trained from the age of 15, when I started on the senior team, it'd been like five years of literally blood, sweat and tears. Like I knew how much it meant and how much I wanted it. So I knew that I was going to be ridiculously nervous. An Olympic Games for a sport like swimming can come around once in your lifetime when you're going to be at your peak. So I knew how important it was. And I think that that was the thing. I had to basically understand that I was going to be ridiculously nervous and do everything I could to alleviate those nerves by working on the process. They always say that medals are won in training, not in the race. And I think that that's like the most true statement about sport or about work. I always used to have a problem with kind of like belief. You know, if I stood on the block, I'd sometimes doubt what I'd done. You know, your mind plays tricks with you. I would sort of question, have I done enough? Have I done this? Have I done that? You know, looking back and sort of like trying to build on confidence that, my brain almost through the nerves wasn't allowing me to access. So with like a sport psychologist, we sat down and beginning of the year came up with this sheet that I could basically tick off every day that I had done my best that day in training. So whatever the day of training looked like, maybe two swim sessions, a gym session and all the kind of bits around training that we do to prepare if I gave my best effort and I did everything right in that day, and that doesn't mean like swimming fast, smashing it out of the park every day, because your body Just turning not... up with the right intention, being doing what you need to do, best self, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's it. just giving your best effort and whatever that looks like. Some days it was swimming really fast times. Some days I was absolutely shattered and it was terrible times. But like I knew that every time I got out the pool, I wanted to know that I'd given it everything. And, you know, I was walking out the pool and knowing I could have done nothing else in that session. And so when I looked back on the year and I had all these sort of like green marks around like the calendar, you know, every single day I'd done exactly what I needed to do. It was like I'd given myself a completely objective 
view of the year and all the work I'd done so that I, my brain couldn't like trick itself into thinking, no, I haven't done enough. I could look back and think I've literally done everything right. I've prepared in the best way possible. I've left no stone unturned. And almost like when I stand up on the block, it is what it is. And I can't have any regrets. I wanted to get into a position where I had no regrets. And, you know, I couldn't think oh, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done this because I knew that that is when you start to get nerves that, you know, you can't get out of your head. Yeah, you're going to get found out kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And can be really difficult to combat. Obviously, in Rio, in the cool room, I was so nervous. But I just kept thinking about the process. I didn't think about the outcome. And I just thought nonstop about all the work that I'd done. And my mind couldn't trick me because it was all there in green, green, green. We use this like mm. color system. So just generally believe like that helped me with the nerves so much. That's a really interesting process. And I guess anyone could do that in pretty much any sphere. So I've been writing a book and actually that might have been quite helpful. Just have that up on the wall and know that you've done that that day, that day, and you're ticking them off, ticking them off. And you can look back and think, okay, however, whatever the outcome is, I've given the best of myself. So therefore, there's nothing more could have been asked of me. So it's that whole no regrets thing, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And when you stand at the finish line, you look back and think you could have done more, you could have done more. But actually, in reality, that's just, again, your mind playing tricks on you. If you are true to yourself and you give your best effort day in, day out, that's where the medals are won and that's where the success comes from. And if it doesn't, it's not meant to be. Like That's one of the great things about sport or life. There's no guarantees, but I know everyone says it to you when you're younger and you're at sports day or whatever. People say, you can only do your best. And then they brush it off as you get older. But that's literally it. Like You can only do your best. That was huge for me. And I think it's true. Like You can apply it to other things in life if you have no regrets and you know, you can really sort of like understand the work that you've done and take confidence in that, then it gives you confidence to feel like when you're at this finishing line of whatever it is, you've done everything you can and you have no regrets and whatever happens, happens. Yeah, totally. Right. Let's talk about Rio 2016. So we go straight to the 200 individual medley. You did qualify this time nicely. I just want to talk about the final. So it's Katink Hotsu who won gold. What I love doing before recording interviews like this is um, watching races or interviews or whatever on YouTube. And so I watched your medal moments. They put a lovely Team GB. There's the soundtrack to it and and the commentary. And like you were closing and closing and closing. And she won gold in the fastest ever time swam by 0.3 seconds. And you were closing and closing. Probably another 10 metres, I reckon, you five metres, two metres. You, you would have caught her. When I said at the start, I'm really grateful for these kind of chats because, you know, watching something like that and then knowing that I'm going to chat to you afterwards, there's something really uh, beautiful about it for me. But I wondered what the experience of swimming that well was like for you. Was it effortless or effortful? How did it feel? Um, it's such a good question because I just... I almost feel like there's this, like, massive dissociation between, like, me sat here now and, like, me that swam that swim it was just I worked day in and day out for like four years for that race and the thing which I would take massive pride in is like the fact that as a national center in Bath where I trained my coach came up with a race plan so basically you know the sports scientists came up with it and it pans out like your ideal race so like from your first 50 second 50 time third 50 time 450 even broken into like your turns so like five meters into the wall five meters out underwaters all of these different elements of the race and I had it in my locker like look at it every day 
yeah, it mapped out my perfect race. So, you know, if we did a race pace session or, you know, a, a thing in training where you had to try and train at your race pace or hit those sort of times in training, you know, for little parts, you know, we'd only ever really do like a 50 or a hundred and we'd break it down and try and swim at that speed. That was what I would aim to be swimming at. And I remember, you know, your race model is like the best race that you could swim if everything comes right on the day. It's normally quite like optimistic and it's always sort of supposed to be achievable, but it's like when everything comes together. And I remember when mine was like 206, I remember thinking, well, that's just bonkers. You know, (laughs) I was like, well, you know, I'll aim for it because the thing is, if I aim for it and I'm a little bit off, that's still a 207, which I'd be really, really proud of. So, you know, it's better to aim high. And (laughs) the race in Rio that I swam was literally every single 50 every single split was literally bang on my race model and that was just like the most kind of like rewarding feeling especially as a bit of a swim nerd as well and there's only ever been two people go quicker which was Katinka and also a girl called Ariana Kukos she used to have the world record but that was broken in a shiny suit textile swim it was like the second fastest of all time so like I was just yeah really proud of that swim I'm not gonna lie. Bet you were so obviously all the times you were training and obviously you're, you're busting a gut to reach that time, that perfect time. When you were in the zone, as you clearly were in that final, when you were hitting all your times, when you swam the perfect race, did it feel like you were busting a gut to do it? Or were you? was there a sense of flow to it? That's what I mean by eff- the difference between effortless and effortful, if you know what I mean. Because some people, when they are really at their best, actually it feels somewhat effortless in the moment. Yeah, I think it definitely did if I look back. And I sometimes don't know if that's because the joy that I felt after it was like masking the pain because, you know, in in swimming and and other sports, you kind of like have your lactate taken. Like, you know, after a race, they'll take your lactate to see, you know, how much is like pumping through your system. And I hit a new lactate PB. I think I hit something like 20 something and I've never been anywhere near that high. So I was obviously in a lot of pain. But it just didn't feel like that. Yeah, it does. It feels like this dissociation. I don't know how I sort of stood on the blocks. You know, I was was the fastest qualifier for an Olympic final, which is like crazy to think of. And then, you know, I delivered like my best ever swim when it really mattered. And I had sort of everything was at stake. Like it was definitely weird because it felt effortless in a way when I think back about it. But obviously at the time, like it was quite effortful. Like I had to be so disciplined in not thinking about the outcome as much as I wanted to you know I wanted to just think oh my gosh like what if I win a medal you know what's this Mm, mm. I just had to think so regimented with like how I felt you know I turned my phone off I did all the things I was supposed to do so it was kind of effortful but then when I look back it felt effortless like actually in the race um you know it just flowed and it was like everything just came together is probably the best way to describe it on the right day which I'm yeah really grateful for this is something I find interesting about sports because obviously people talk about gold medals or winning and it's all about winning but that doesn't always tell the story and in your case that's true because you did swim the second fastest time of all time obviously as well with your health issues and what you've been through in terms of having like a really chronic condition that can be both incredibly painful but can even lead to having to have major surgery, can't it? I mean, it's that serious and it's invisible as well. So there's that element to it. So I think if you look at what you achieved in Rio 2016, you know, and if it'd been another another year, you would have won gold. 
if you're just focused on the fact that who wins gold, you don't get the full picture. But actually, I think really analysing it, hearing your story, everything like that, what you achieved in Rio 2016, I mean, that's, that's as good as a gold as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I feel like it was my gold. Um, so it's really nice to hear you say that because to me, it was like, that was my gold medal. <laughs> Everything, like, that's the crazy thing is in sport, you know, sometimes as a sports fan, like you can see the person sitting on the top of the podium and you think, I'm like guilty of thinking it, that if people are still on the top of the podium, then like nothing's gone wrong for them to get there. You almost like think that oh, everything must have just gone completely smooth sailing their whole career and that's why they've become successful but that's not it at all the journey to success literally like full of bumps in the road and twists and turns and all that sort of thing I think one of the things which I've thought about like since I've retired is I felt really lucky you know towards the end of my career when things you know with my health I was struggling I was quite resentful of the cards I was dealt I guess like I was just frustrated that you know, I probably would have had another few years in me if I hadn't have had this. And yeah, it can be really serious, but I'd always managed it well. And I'm really, really grateful for that because it could have stopped me at any point. I feel like I was sort of punched above my weight in a way because sometimes the cards I was dealt maybe could have like kept me out and I could have been really unlucky and had a flare up a few months before the Olympics that I didn't get under control and that could have had me out. I look back and I'm quite hard on myself as an athlete. I always like have been. And, you know, I've been hard on myself in recent years, like really hard. And, you know, I sort of thought, oh, like, how did I do it in the past? But my coach will say, and like my family will say, the thing with colitis is not just the actual symptoms from colitis that you get, but my immune system was absolutely rubbish. I mean, we used to struggle. My coach like would pull his hair out. <laughs> like that. I couldn't even put three weeks together sometimes without getting run down and getting ill. I'd get like tonsillitis and stuff like my immune system was rubbish so I'd just pick up anything that was going and training and swimming is all about consistency and thankfully the time that I needed to have the consistency which was like the months before Rio I actually managed to get it and I think that that was the big factor I managed to have like three months of really consistent training which yeah then paid off but like for years it was it was never smooth sailing it was like always out for something mm, <laughs> um, mm. things like my own fault as well I remember like just before the trials for the Olympics I perforated my eardrum because I fell off like so just like constant sort of you know hiccups along the road and people just don't see that sometimes no I think people not seeing what's going on in the background that's what I like so much about your story is that you had this invisible condition that you were battling and then Literally, I mean, you said you you have this one three month spell where you were not constantly battling illness, were able to put a decent training run together, and swam the second fastest time of all time. I mean, that again, it comes back to that thing. It's just it's so much more than just simple gold medal. I think that to me, you like definitely deserved it. So um, you know, and watching it, I, I loved watching it. So well done. Anyway, um, so after Rio, right? You'd kept your condition under wraps, hadn't you? Which is totally understandable because it can be a little bit of an embarrassing condition in terms of what you have to go through. And I know, obviously, you wanted to keep it a bit under wraps, but then it did come out a little bit. And you said actually that when people heard that you'd been battling this condition or contending with this condition and they have got a similar thing themselves, then all these people were coming out of the woodwork and saying what an inspiration they were to you, which completely transformed 
the way you felt about it and about being open and about being honest and and accepting it, knowing actually that you were able to be a role model for all these other people who were struggling in silence too. So yeah, just tell me a little bit about sort of coming out of the closet, if you like, about it. Yeah, it, it really was like as a result of my swim in Rio. I feel a bit ashamed to say like before Rio embarrassed about it. But, you know, I was diagnosed at 16, which <laughs> I guess I was a teenager and like being embarrassed about things is like, it totally makes sense. I'd be struggle if anyone didn't understand why you wouldn't feel that way. Exactly. So like, I was just kind of almost getting used to the fact that, you know, at that point, I'd been swimming and it became a hobby. And then it sort of became a profession. And I was inclined to do like media interviews and all that stuff. And I, I really enjoyed all of that. Like, and, you know, it was exciting. And, but I just didn't want to talk about my condition. I just I never brought it up. I was scared anyone had ever like work out what was going on. And the only people that knew were those close to me, like my family and friends and, you know, my support team. But other than that, it just, it wasn't really in the public eye. And that was like comfortable for me. Like I was quite glad, like I found it hard to tell, you know, my family and friends. So like, I didn't want people that I didn't know really understanding or knowing what was going on just because I, I thought that potentially it could be, you know, if I didn't achieve something that it could be seen as an excuse and I never wanted it to be seen as an excuse. And also, like, part of me didn't want it to be, like, seen as something that, you know, if it was out there that my rivals might think, oh, she's weak or she's this or that. And I just didn't feel confident talking about it. But then um, I remember when I won the medal in Rio and then I had the press conference and I'd never had a press conference before. So that was pretty cool. And mm-hmm. there was this uh, a journalist that came up to me and he said that he'd somehow, like, seen or read somewhere that I had colitis and he said that he had it or someone in his family had had it and he was just like yeah really pleased with me and like proud of what I'd achieved and with this condition you know that completely took me aback and I was like oh wow that's you know that's lovely the next week it sort of started to get picked up in the press and there was a few articles about it and you know I had this condition and then I'd gone and won a medal and I started to get so many messages from people which was like completely overwhelming and really really took me aback and like really surprised me and made me so emotional people had said that by me speaking out about it or you know from it being public knowledge that they'd got strength from that and found that you know they were felt more comfortable telling people and it gave them belief that like you know the condition didn't have to stop them from doing what they wanted to do and it's completely invisible like you can look absolutely fine on the outside mm. and really poorly and that's why it really rarely gets diagnosed. You can have it for years and not know that you have it or not get seen about it. Or, and it means that people feel like they can't really talk about it. Do you know, it's just... Yeah, 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 I totally understand. Yeah, of course. And, and and this is, I think, a really important thing is that you never know what someone's going through. They might look absolutely fine, whether it's mental health, of which, by the way, in terms of people who have colitis, well, they the old gut brain axis and are much more prone to things like anxiety and depression. But whether it's mental health or in your case, physical um, health, you just don't know what someone's got going on and having to deal with something where it is invisible and no one knows. It can be very lonely, I think. And obviously, yeah, just that hard because you people have no idea. Yeah, and the thing that I've learned is like, the more that you talk about it, the more it makes other people feel like they can talk about it. It's like a positive circle of, I've always been such a big believer that as soon as people understand what's going on like they'll be there to support you and you don't feel like you're going through it alone and 
I get confidence when I hear other people talking about it and being open about it and sharing their stories and I think the Crohn's and colitis community are like fantastic. I'm always like really moved by some of the messages and like the support that people have for each other. I think it's just, you know, the nature of the condition is pretty rubbish for people at times and can be really debilitating. And I've opened um, a couple of the fundraisers, like the Walker events that Crohn's and colitis hold. And it's just fantastic. It always makes me really um ah, just emotional when people Mm. tell me their stories and you know I just think why did I ever feel embarrassed because there's nothing to be embarrassed about and Mm. a fantastic um, charity and do a lot for people who really need it. To me there's that graph you can almost plot a graph and it it goes something like acceptance and authenticity and then once you've got that and you're able to be open and accept stuff in you then you can move on to that stage of being able to help others and it sounds like that is kind of a, a process you went through. You had to, first of all, you started out resisting and denying what you had to deal with. Then obviously there was like an understandable embarrassment and wanting to keep it to yourself. And then gradually it sort of came out and, and you accepted it more and more. And then from that point, other people started coming and reinforcing it in you and you were then able to help others. Do, do you see what I mean in terms of the, again, it comes back to acceptance and being honest and open and all those type of things? Yeah, it does. I think with this condition and with lots of different things in life, you know, like it just struggles. Like sometimes it's, acceptance is so key and sometimes it's harder than others to get that acceptance or find that acceptance. I'd be lying if I didn't say like, I'd sometimes felt like, oh, you know, if things have been going well and then, you know, I get ill and have a flare, like, get really down I think why me like why are these the cards I've been dealt like when it stops me doing things that I want to do it is completely about acceptance and that you come it goes in waves like I think it's sort of I accept I accept it so much more generally than what I did there's still times where I just think oh gosh like you know Mm. not if only yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I've really struggled the past couple of years when it sort of has really caught up with me and I've not been able to do what I when I want to do when I feel like my body let me down which is really hard to come to terms with but you know I always kind of saw it as like a poker game in a way like you you literally can't control the hand that you're dealt and someone told me once it's like if you get dealt a two and a seven like out of two like that's the worst hand you can be dealt with you could fold but then two twos and a seven could come down and so you don't know what could have been if you fold I always think that that's like a really good analogy it's like you can't control the hand you've been dealt but you never know what can happen if you give it a go that's always been my mindset with swimming and sport and I guess life in general are you at peace then with your decision and how are you feeling then about the future and and using that attitude you just outlined about you just got to play the hands you've got and, and don't fold too quickly and various other lessons you've learned whether it be about looking back and marking off on the chart that you know, you've put the work in, so your mind can't trick you. And are you at peace with your decision? And are you confident that the lessons you've learned will set you up well for life? Yeah, definitely. I know I said about the cards have been dealt. And the big thing for me was like, accepting that this was the best decision for me, like, like, my mind was really strong. And I knew it was, I was like, I can overcome anything. And, you know, I think it was really hard for me to come to terms with like, this time, it wasn't mind over matter. It was like I had to listen to my body. And then that acceptance was like where I started to feel so much better and realized that the right decision for me was to look after me. And I feel a lot, lot better from having, you know, made that decision and 
playing my cards differently in a way and I, I'm just in a much much better place than I was of course it's like sad I know I'll miss swimming you know it's been a huge part of my life and it was my first love and I did fall completely in love with it and I still am like I still I have all those amazing memories from the sport and not just the memories but the lessons as well it taught me so much about life <laughs> I think sport is life but just on a heightened level that's so true I'm so much more self-aware like I, I've learned some really fundamental lessons about setbacks and making the most of opportunities and the people kind of around me on the journey like my coach sport teaches you so many good things like teaches you how to be a good sports person and be gracious in defeat and you know how to like strive for better and get the best out of yourself and I do feel like excited about whatever's next because I feel like sport's really given me an amazing decade of life experiences that I'm grateful for well put and I'm kind of excited for you as well so we did chat before we recorded and as you know I'm as and particularly anyone who's listened don't tell me the score for a, for a while will know that I'm a fermented food fanatic and I've had a few of my own tummy issues down the years not as serious as yours but serious enough that I looked for ways to improve them so that's why I got into making kefir at home and my other half she does the water kefir I do the milk kefir we've done kombucha we've done all this kind of stuff and I sent you an episode of mine on circadian rhythms so eating within a time frame so I tend to eat within a 10-hour window as Sachin Panda explained in one of my episodes the benefits of that so because you told me about how as an athlete you're looking to fuel your body as a performance machine whereas now you can turn the attention a little more in terms of fueling your body purely for health so to what degree are you looking forward to exploring that have you followed up on any of my fermenting suggestions and did you listen to that episode <laughs> um firstly the am I looking forward to yeah I definitely am I think it's been really weird like my whole kind of swimming career food's always been like a tool you have to eat to fuel like I've had to eat to make sure that I have enough energy for the session and and my training and like needs to meet the demands of what I'm putting on my body and I've always enjoyed food I've absolutely loved food but I've always seen it as like things that I'm eating I mean if I'm eating bad things I see it like I get guilty and you know and I just feel a bit um oh I shouldn't be putting this into my body you know it needs to be fuel so I'm really excited to just have the freedom and to basically eat what I want and not have to worry about it being like a tool for performance or anything like that and then using it as something that can benefit my health I'm going to start trying the fermented water um <laughs> and sense and stuff and like I'm really excited to try it because the benefits um could be huge and I've heard such great stories mm. like yeah, the fermented stuff Stephanie stuff I'm going to try and no unfortunately I haven't listened to the go <laughs> sorry not yet but I'm going to because anything around eating times is really important especially for my condition it's all about digesting food and if you've got sort of problems going on in your gut then you know you kind of want foods that are really easy to digest so I think you forget how hard your body has to work to digest food so I think it'd be really interesting to explore you know how I can actually improve my health by thinking about when and what I eat at different times absolutely well report back and then breaking news as well got to have a bit of a scoop potentially you'll be following us into the broadcasting slash journalism trade <laughs> that's exactly what I'd like to do yeah 
back in sort of 2012, 2013, I was um, a Sky Sports Scholar, which was absolutely fantastic. And I had such an incredible experience on that programme. And even now, like I still have really close contact with my mentor, Tony, and we just like were able to see this whole commercial world of sport. And as a sports fan, you know, I remember like how much my family loved it and all the cool opportunities that I got to experience um, on that scholarship. And I remember thinking like, this is what I'd love to do after I finish swimming. You know, I, I want to still be involved with sport, but kind of like the enjoyment side and like the spectator element and also like this participation yeah getting people playing and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah exactly and I'm just a massive sports fan and I thought you know it's kind of like the perfect job really where you get to enjoy the sport and so yeah I'm studying to become a journalist which yeah I'm excited about but the exams are difficult (laughs) and I haven't studied in years so um, get that form up on the wall tick the days off so that you know you've put the work in then you get in the exam you'll be absolutely fine and look, I know you've already got a, a mentor there, but like I said to you before, any help I can give, I'm right here whenever you need. And I'm sure people listening will be like, right, you know, I've got lots of um, people from various parts of sport who, who listen. So you never know, perhaps a job will come out of this. Anyway, uh, listen, uh, Siobhan Marie, it has been an absolute pleasure. It's been lovely picking out the lessons. You've obviously learned so much from your 10 years as an elite athlete and you're still only 25 and yeah chatting about the highs and the lows and everything all that kind of stuff and it's just been really really lovely so I just want to say a massive thank you and I'm sure that you will thrive in whatever you do just like your nan said on that Instagram post. Uh, Thank you Simon I really appreciate it it's been lovely to speak to you too. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Don't Tell Me The Score with Siobhan Marie O'Connor. If you could share this episode with anyone you think might benefit from hearing it, I'd be very grateful. Don't Tell Me The Score is a podcast that's grown by word of mouth recommendation. So if you could help spread the word, I would be hugely appreciative. If you want to sign up for my new newsletter, head over to my website, simonmundy.com and join our growing band of subscribers. It's out every Monday and features some of the best Don't Tell Me The Score nuggets I've picked up over the last two and a half years of recording these interviews. You can also connect with me on social media at Simon Mundy. That's it for this week. Next week, I've got a very special guest to mark the start of Wimbledon. And I'm going to be on TV for the BBC from the All England Club for the Wimbledon fortnight. So keep your eyes peeled for me there. And if you're one of the people lucky enough to have got a ticket, do message me on social media and I'll try and pop out between breaks in filming to say hi. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks again for listening. And I hope you'll join me again next time on Don't Tell Me The Score. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.